the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, and Happy New Year. It will be the new year in two days. So Happy New Year to everyone. Our wish for you for 2022 is if you have a substance abuse problem, that you become clean and sober. If you have a loved one who has a substance abuse problem, that they become clean and sober. That's our wish for you. That's our New Year's wish for you. Today is episode number 246. My name is Joni Siegel. I'm the host for the podcast, and my husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer and mastermind for the podcast. Today we have, and oh, before I talk about who our interview is, um, just a reminder that um, please subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And also check us out on YouTube, subscribe to our channel, give us a thumbs up, and give us a good rating wherever you listen. Because what that does is that helps people find us. And you know us, we're all about positivity and messages of hope and messages that help is available. So the more people that find us, the more people we can help. So thank you for that. Today, we are talking to a gentleman named Mike Grant. Mike Grant is a licensed clinical social worker and certified alcohol and drug counselor. He currently works as an addiction therapist for Kaiser Permanente and as an adjunct professor in the alcohol and drug counseling program at Portland Community College. Mike received his bachelor's and master of social work degrees from Portland State University. He's a member of Run, the Run TRG Running Group for people who identify in recovery. He enjoys training for ultra marathons. I am in awe. In his spare time, and has recently completed both a 150 mile endurance rate. Okay, I'm not sure I want to talk to this guy. I'm now already embarrassed. Mike is working towards starting a private practice called Aid Station Sports Performance Therapy to help people meet performance goals in 2022. He lives with his son in Portland, Oregon. Without further ado, let's talk to Mike Grant. Mike Grant, thank you so much for being willing to be on the podcast today and sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this. Absolutely. So take us back. Where did you grow up? What was your home life like? How did you how did you get involved with alcohol and or drugs? Well, I'm from the state of Michigan. I'm from both peninsulas. I was born in the upper peninsula of Michigan on a small Native American reservation land, a little village called Launce. And then I moved downstate to the lower peninsula of Michigan to Battle Creek, which is the home of Kellogg's when I was about five. And Stayed there till I was 18. I ended up going into the military at 18. Um, but that's my origins. I have family in both peninsulas. Uh, my folks have moved back up to the Upper Peninsula now. So uh, I get to go back to uh, both of them. Uh, but, you know, Native American reservation land, uh, we have a little genetic predisposition um, to alcohol. So my family tree definitely, like most others, has um, some alcoholism in, in the tree branches. And so um, I was one of those branches that sprouted. And uh, I remember having my first drink at around 13 or 14. I remember the night vividly. Uh, it was kind of funny when my mom picked me up the next morning. She knew that something was up. I lied. Uh, but she like, I couldn't get it past her. She was like giving me that dirty eye. Like something's up with you. Something's Moms different. always know, Mike. Yeah. 
Well, and like it was, I found my love affair. You know, I found like my boo for the next twenty something years of my life. I was. It was a day of change for me. Interesting. Did you? Did you do it just because you were interested in doing it, or did you have issues, or? Well, I, I definitely think that um, there was some things in my life. Um, there was some alcoholism in my family. My folks drank. I have a right. great relationship with my parents uh, now, but there was alcoholism in the house. My dad and my mom divorced when we moved downstate and he took off and he was pretty much gone for the majority of my life. So there was definitely some resentment and some anger. How old um, were you when that happened, when your parents five. ended up? I was five, five when my dad left. Um, I got a stepdad um, who's been my dad for all these years since. Uh, but a big part of my mom and stepdad's relationship was alcohol-based. Um, mm. We, you know, we had food, we had those things, but there was just this, like, narrative that was beginning to be formed, you know, shame-based around, like, you know, what's what's wrong with me where my dad doesn't want to be in my life, um, right. that my folks, you know, would rather drink. And as I got older and we had, I was the oldest of four kids. Um, it was kind of this blended family with a stepbrother and then a younger sister who was my mom and stepdad's um, child. And so as we got more autonomy and able to cook and do those things that allowed for the parents to spend a little bit more time at watering holes. And so like this just narrative um, just created and shame is a big, I didn't know until I read some Brene Brown books and I was like, Oh, that's what it is <laughs> all this time. Uh, I just thought it was what the way I, you lived. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't, really anything that I was doing to learn how to like cope with like those emotions. And, uh, and so when I first had alcohol, I, it just immediately resolved those feelings and I had yeah. something that could help me with them and I could become something else. And, um, just, and then from that point, it felt like every weekend was like, what are we going to do around alcohol? You know? And so I, I formed friendships with people who were similar in that regard that um, we, you know, partied and did those things that a lot of um, youth and adolescents do. Okay. And you said your mom knew it like kind of like the first time you tried it. Did she know as it progressed that it was going on? Yeah, there was, there was instances where I came home. I got taken home after a fight uh, by a police car one time and uh, I was intoxicated. And so there wasn't, they kind of knew that this road was coming down the road for me. Uh, and so, um, you know, and when I had my open house for like graduating high school, we had a keg. And so it, it became this rite of passage that it does with a lot of like families that as long as you don't do the hard stuff, right. That was the narrative, even though alcohol's, you know, the major player in the world and kills people. Yeah. Uh, so it is the hard stuff yep. in a lot of ways. Yep. Exactly. So there was no thought of like, oh, maybe he has a problem and we need to address it. It was just like, he's a young guy. It's what you do when you're young. And, and doing what all my buddies are doing and, you know, significant others that I'm dating are doing. And so, yeah, it was just what we did. And, and I was in sports. So in, in Michigan, football is life. And so I played football from third grade on. And so it was kind of what football players and jocks and that sort of thing kind of did. So it was normal. 
However, the level of intoxication I got uh, that they didn't always see um, was kind of alarming um, in hindsight, you know, when you look at it. Wow. Okay. So did you go to college? I ended up going to college much later. Uh, I went to, I enlisted in the army at 18 and I went to Germany for three years, a three-year enlistment is what I signed up for. And I did basic training in Kentucky and then went to Germany. And um, I ended up doing like a peacekeeping mission in Bosnia my last six of my last eight months while in the military and then came back home after that. Now, as I'm going to stop you just for a second, just as a side note, because I'm what is a what is a peacekeeping mission? What does that involve typically? And so we went to Bosnia because they had the civil war that happened um, there. And so there was the three war factions with the uh, Bosnian Serbians and the Croatians that were there. And so UN goes in and tries to like stabilize the country. Uh, The leadership that was creating the civil war um, left. And so it was a stabilization so that the country could develop again. Okay. And so you bring in UN and we are part of a UN peacekeeping team. Okay, fair enough. I interrupted. I apologize. No, okay, no. So, so I didn't there. have to. I didn't have to point a gun at another human being, uh, which I'm very thankful for with my military experience. I thank uh, Bill Clinton for uh, that. Uh, I'm a big fan of not having to have done that. Which who knows, like what that would have created in my life. And we have so many soldiers and veterans that come back with PTSD and addiction and stress and anxiety and all these mental health disorders. And thankfully, like I dodged that. Um, but I went to Germany without parental supervision um, and they were developing policies around like how we got to be as single soldiers in the barracks. And it wasn't as strict as you would think that it would be. So there was more allowance that we could act as married soldiers did off base, which they could have alcohol and decorate their places as they want and, you know, party a little bit. And so that's, we had a barracks full of young men partying with income coming in Uh, and I could drink at 18 years old. And so it went from this, like, I'm going to drink on the weekends kind of a thing, you know, that you do as an adolescent living at home until I'm going to have beer in my fridge or I'm going to have a bottle in my freezer. And that's going to be what I do every day after work with everybody I know. And so um, alcohol intake definitely like increased during my enlistment period. Okay. Did it affect your um, career, your army career or not at all? I was a pretty good soldier uh, and I'm thankful for that. I had a pretty good sergeant in charge of me who uh, he didn't, he knew kind of what was going on and he didn't allow me to really go off the rails too much. I was at morning formation. I was doing PT. I was doing my job, but at night I was getting loose a little bit <laughs> as we all were in, in Germany. Uh, Yeah. And and there was, it wasn't just alcohol as well. There was other drugs that were being used by soldiers in the military and myself as well. So what other drugs, Mike? um, There was ecstasy and speed were kind of like the big ones, um, like club culture um, drinking. That was kind of what we would do is go to the clubs and like hang out until four o'clock in the morning or two o'clock in the morning or or later. And so it was more of like stimulant based uh, substances that were understood. Kind yeah, of to so, counter the bill, the beer, sorry. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the amount of beer that we would drink on those evenings is just staggering because we would be on stimulants. Right, right. Okay, so yeah. what happened after that? 
I went to, I moved back home and I was going to live in my parents' basement for a while and figure some things out, but they decided to move back to the Upper Peninsula of Michigan pretty quickly after I got there. It was kind of their plan. And so I moved up to East Lansing, Michigan, which is Michigan State uh, University. And that was where a bunch of my friends had gone or were going to school up there. And so I kind of went from a party to a party to college uh, life. And so you know, all these buddies are like going to class, but it's Tuesday and we got drink nights at this place and it's Thursday and we got drink nights and the games on Saturday. And next thing you know, six years go by and I went to a community college there, got a couple credits for a while, but a pattern began after the military of not being able to continue to do things. The alcohol was impacting my ability to fulfill goals, even set some goals. Um, and so I'm going to go to school and like do this and then fail out of school after starting off like really well. Um, and then a real continual process of that, which also like furthered that shame, you know, and that negative thinking as I'm going out with some of my buddies who are doing the exact same thing as me, yet they're waking up and going to class the next day somehow. Uh, and you know, they're going to graduate and they're going to move to different places to begin their young professionalism lives or go on to graduate school. And I'm sitting there with 12 credits completed. As to you. So, yeah, I, I know that I had this. I was seeing other people be successful and still partying, but yet I, I wasn't able to. Um, and so, some you know, I was starting to see some like health things where I just, I was, I just wasn't myself, a low energy and a lot of different things and um, just not where I wanted to be, but didn't really know any other way of being. It's interesting. So how old were you then, Mike? 21 through 26 is when I was in East Lansing, Michigan, right out of the military to 26. And then I, I where I live now, Portland, Oregon, I moved in uh when i was 26 out here right but I, I just find it interesting that even at a young age you started to feel some of the physical effects of the drinking and you know i've talked about this on the podcast before because i think sometimes people don't think about it it's like the long-term effect on the body with not only alcohol but also hardcore drugs you know like people lose part of their intestines or they lose all their teeth or you know, and it's just, it's interesting to me that even at a very young age, you started to realize that physically this was taking its toll. Yeah, you know, and, you know, and I'll get to this a little bit later, but like right now I work for a, uh, in a healthcare industry at, in the addiction medicine field, and I go see patients in hospital rooms. And you're exactly right. There's this narrative, like we're going to end up dead or in prison. No, you're going to end up in a hospital bed, really, really sick with some nasty, nasty things going on. And it's really, really, really hard to see people, you know, early Wernicke's. And, you know, I blacked out so many times so often that if I had continued drinking, um, I, I would have to think that, like, I could have had some cognitive decline for sure. And maybe um, some dementia, like later on in life. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So I'm going to say there's three alternatives because there is death if you're doing hard drugs because fentanyl is coming in at such a rate. And oh, then yeah. there is incarceration. And then the third one would be, you're going to be in the hospital with a debilitating physical condition that right. they can't really fix. You're right. Yeah, totally. We have, um, the most overdoses in the, in Oregon, um, uh, 
And they had a 47% increase in overdose deaths. And a lot of it is because of fentanyl. Well, we won't get into the political part of the approval of legalization and all that. Uh, but anyway, I digress. So mm -hmm. go ahead. You started noticing things with yourself. Noticed, yeah, noticed things with myself, um, just not being able to, um, and just like depression um, started to come in, like just pretty depressed, like most of the time, just drinking through it, not knowing it's depression. Um, so I moved to Portland uh, with a girlfriend at the time, someone I was dating, and we moved here. We had some friends that um, lived here, Portland, Oregon, and uh, moved here. And, you know, with ge geographical move, it's going to change some things. And, you know, I just kind of brought the party to a bigger party in a lot of ways. Uh, the relationship didn't work out. And so at one point I was single out here and um, huge bar scene and I was ready to get into it and did for many years. I, I, I also like part of like my story is uh, I'm a habitual drunk driver. Um, mm. I can't even tell you the amount of times that I drove drunk, but I've been caught three times. And so um, I got a DUI prior to moving to Oregon in Michigan as well. Uh, and so that began, the reason that I am sober and coming up on 10 years is because of court intervention in Multnomah County um, after getting my third one. Okay. And Multnomah County, that's in Michigan? That's in Portland, Oregon. That's where or I live. Portland. That's, okay. That's the county that I'm in. So you had um, one DUI in Michigan and then you moved to Oregon. Moved to Oregon. Yep. Yeah. And, and a couple more. I ended up getting a couple more. I um, I was bartending here for like seven years, and uh, that okay, was that's a, a really bad idea for someone who has yeah. an alcohol problem, be, Mike. Totally, it, and I, I can't even tell you like how bad of an idea it was. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast, or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name. Or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 1-833-918-0008 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one hour consultation with Bobby. Yeah, I had job security because I could drink while I work. It was the longest I've ever held a job in my life uh, is because, you know, as soon as I got there, I was like, well, I'll meet you in the back room. Uh, and so um, even we though need to I ended... discuss career counseling, okay? <laughs> it was, you know, even though I got fired uh, basically from because of, um, um, my behavior while intoxicated or impaired at the job at a place where I could drink at. Uh, so, I mean, that tells you like how bad it got and like how irresponsible and unmanageable my life became. Um, 
And so, yeah, I, um, I ended up getting a DUI at 31. Two weeks later, I found out that a woman I had been dating was pregnant uh, and then I was going to have a son. And so this was a terrifying moment of uh, an irresponsible man's life who just wanted to party. Uh, and so, but the son like was pivotal, right? Having a child, I, I say to people that my son was the first thing that ever got me out of my own head. Um, and so I lived in this thing and this thing was winning, right? So it was like the dependent thoughts and like um, my reward highway being hijacked. Like my thoughts were keeping me depressed and keeping me stuck and keeping me not doing shit about it really is what happened. But now I had something that I loved um, and genuinely maybe the first thing that I loved. I've told people I loved them uh, and I love my family, but like loved and like care for and I got to keep you safe. Now, even with that, I didn't get instantly sober and become, you know, the best dad in the world. Um, I was in a relationship and uh, it started off really good. And we were just like in love with having a newborn and a toddler, but, you know, we would still drink together and we were still in, and our friends were drinkers. And eventually we just got to a point where we were unhealthy with one another and we split up um, and it was a good move. And so neither of us could get healthy um, with, with being in the relationship, but my son was pretty close to being four. And I lived in this house and everybody had left and moved out of this house. I remember coming home from work being like, well, I can't stay here. Like I'm going to go crazy if I stay in this house. Um, and I went drinking and got my third DUI in February of 2012. Uh, I crashed a moped into a van, um, which, you know, just the thought of like my son, like if, if I had passed or if I had killed somebody, like my son would have to tell that story for the rest of his life. And like, his dad died on a moped, um, drunk and like, Oh, like, I'm so glad that, um, I had this chance to like change my life and give him this whole different life. Interesting. So that was kind of your point of no return. That was Third, definitely, that's... definitely my point of no return. Yeah. I hired this, well, I talked to this lawyer about like helping me get through this, even though I know I needed to change. I was recognizing it was alcohol for the first time in my life. Um, I have this best friend who bailed me out like of jail several times in different states. And he picked me up that morning and told me, we got to keep you out of cars. And I told him it wasn't the cars. Mm. And it was the first time that I acknowledged it's drinking. Um, did I get sober after that? Nope. Um, I talked to this lawyer and the lawyer actually gave me some pretty good advice. And I ended up going, signing up for this, it's called DISP. It's this diversion intensive supervision program in Multnomah County, Portland. Uh, and it was a three year diversion program. The first eight months were the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, financially, mentally, um, emotionally. And um, I had Multnomah County's assistance in the starting the process, but I was drinking up until the day that this program started. The judge even said, have you stopped drinking? I'm like, not yet. So they're like, well, you better stop, stop tomorrow or we're going to talk about a different plan. So um, April 14th of 2012, um, I quit. In 2015, I started that program. Wow. Or, I mean, April 15th of that year, the day after I started that program. Wow. Just out of curiosity, because we know from talking to other rehabs, um, going cold turkey off of alcohol can be deadly or very detrimental 
Did you take medication to help you with that or did you cold turkey it? I did not. I didn't have severe withdrawal. I didn't have DTs or hallucinations or um, shakes, but I, my hangovers were awful. I mean, I mean, to the point of like not being able to do anything, staying on the couch, I'd get shakes and sweats. Um, but cold Turkey wasn't, um, too like severe or of a challenge for me. I, I had a harder time with like emotional regulation because I right. used alcohol. So whatever. You're lucky anything, though, because some people do have like oh, yeah. horrific DTs and seizures and all kinds mm-hmm. of stuff. So you're lucky from that viewpoint. In hospital work, I see those patients all the time. And yeah. so I work for a place and we have a detox you clinic. So if they're members of ours, we try to get them a detox bed or some of them detox in the hospital or get at home medications. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Awesome. But harder for you was the mental aspect of it. So yeah, right. how to deal with stress. How do you deal with stress when you, you can't have a drink? Right. You've dealt with stress the same way for 23 years. Um, arrested development, right? This is how I uh, managed my emotions. This is how I managed stress. Um, so what do I do now? That's where I was at. And, and this program was highly stressful. And I was learning to co-parent with a significant other at the same time, um, not the easiest thing to do. Uh, this was also a very expensive program, and I worked in a deli making sandwiches, so I made like $13 an hour. And okay. so I would tell these people, I'm like, well, it's simple math. This doesn't work. I can't afford to be in this program, so you're setting me up for failure. I sold plasma. I did everything that you could imagine legally. And I thought about some criminal things many times um, to pay for this first eight months of this program. Um, but luckily he got through it. Uh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and began to see some like positive benefits in my life. And that was uh, pretty significant for me. That's awesome. So what did you come up with to deal with the stress? What did you, what did you come up with? Well, I mean, I think two things were really vital for me. I had I've always been a little bit of a runner. I've liked running, uh, but in active addiction, especially like becoming like domesticated in thirties and eating three meals a day and watching TV, like it just, it got harder and harder to be a runner. I would run occasionally, but not a runner. And so I had a friend just say, anytime you want to drink, go for a run. And it was some of the most significant advice that I've ever gotten in my life, because I mean, I would be stressed out about something. I'd be on the phone having an argument with my son's mom about trivial stuff, just everyday things. You know, no one's being awful. It's just how to deal with this. And I would set the phone down and always have running shoes on and just run right out of my house. And I had this running stroller. And so I had no money to be a parent with, so we couldn't do cool stuff. So I would just run to a park that was really close, let my kid play and then run back. And they would be like a half mile or a mile away, but I felt better, you know, and it started this process of like feeling better. then I started to like really get into it and set some goals around it. And, you know, I remember like running seven miles for the first time and thinking this is like crazy that this happened. Uh, Like how did, how in the world did this happen? Uh, And then, I mean, so that was like pretty, pretty important. I also was like court main mandated to do treatment or recovery groups. So like, so AANA, um, these sort of things, I had to get two signed slips a week. And just like, a, if you go to any AA meeting, somebody's got a slip by get, getting signed. Uh, and 
I can't say AA was a big part of my early recovery. Uh, I can't say that I'm the, I, I, it just doesn't work as well for me now. I love it as a program. I think it saved people's lives. And if it works for you, awesome. It right? doesn't work for everyone. And right. we know it, that. Yeah, it, and everybody's it, recovery is different. And one program that works for you might not work for someone else. Obviously, I wouldn't take up running just because I don't think <laughs> right. my body could do it. So, no. but yeah, but it worked for you. That's, and that's the thing is like, but you know, I also think like, I don't know if I would have been sober without a, like, I don't know if I would have had like being mandated to go in there. I had some of my biggest aha moments of my recovery sitting in AA moment, meetings, listening to people. So um, where I say it doesn't work for me, it has worked for me. Uh, and so um, I, I go to meetings still. Um, I go to NA meetings every now and then. I, I go to recovery Dharma meetings every now and then, but like those two things were pretty important uh, in my early recovery, uh, running um, and that uh, and meetings. And Okay. And you've taken running kind of to another level. And when I was reading your bio, you're, you're, you actually want to use that to help others, right? So yes, I, um, in the last couple years, so I ended up going back to school um, during this process, I had a really great counselor. And uh, I kind of had the idea of like, maybe I'd like to do this for a living and uh, had some things fall in place where I actually was able to financially go back to school. And then, so I ended up getting a master's in social work, but really had this idea about like exercise and the impact it has for people in recovery and mental health and all of these things. And so when I got done with my master's program, I there's a national agency that has similar uh, ideals, right? And so we started a Portland chapter of that national company. And uh, so we got a running group started. And like every Saturday at 8 a.m., we had some people show up and we just started running together. And some of my best friends uh, that I have in this town, my strongest friends in recovery, are people that were running in that early one. Well, the thing about like having a national company is we didn't have a lot of like support. We didn't have people on ground here. And so sometimes when you're scaling a business, you don't have all the support needed. So we didn't feel that support from them. And one of the things that we wanted to do is, you know, I want to have coffee with people in Portland. Like I want to develop relationships with people in my town. And so there's this, um, we have an Alano club PDX here in town and they're amazing and progressive and, they started a gym, they got a grant to start a gym and it's called the recovery gym. And so it offers free CrossFit classes for people in who identify in recovery from anything. And it's three times a day, Monday through Friday, they have a Saturday um, class and it's, it's huge. It's significant in um, really like helping people instead of going to your AA meeting, you go to a recovery class you like lift weights and you develop a program and you set goals. And so part of that grant was to start a running club with it. And so I started a discussion with the folks there and we started run TRG, which the TRG stands for the recovery gym. And we offer, we have this amazing like ultra runner coach. Who's a badass. His name is Yassine Daboon. He is, I mean, it's, if you, you could talk to anybody in the recovery or the running community and say, Hey, do you know Yassine? They know him. He's like that. Kind of. <laughs> So um, he coaches uh, yesterday, like we have Tuesday night track night. Um, we usually have like 15, 16 people who go to it all in recovery. Um, we have a 
uh, Friday night run through the trails in the woods. We call it Friday night happy hour. We do it at six o'clock instead of being a happy hour is what we do. Then we have a Saturday morning run um, on another place here. And so we've developed this and we grew. We had COVID pop up, you know, right when we were getting in our groove, like just everybody else. So we had to scale back and people were running on their own in safe ways. Um, And then we got going again and it's really like taken off. We were talking about it last night. We have so many people that are connected to this community that have run a 5K, run a half marathon, run a marathon for the first time in their life. And then some of us have gotten into ultra running. Like I was a marathon runner. I've run six marathons before coming into this group. But then I learned about ultra marathon because I'm surrounding myself with people who have what I want, which is a recovery principle. Uh, And so this year I ran a 50 mile run and a hundred mile run. I ran a a hundred mile run. It took me 27 hours. Yeah. <laughs> 27 hours of running. Wow. And so this is, I mean, this is, I tell people in like recovery, like you, if you start at the beginning with goals, um, you won't be able to see, it'll be outside your perspective to see where you might end up. Um, uh, as long as you continue one day at a time doing yeah. the right thing, yeah. uh, and correcting errors that might happen. I, uh, I think that, you know, I think that's huge, Mike. We, a couple of weeks ago, we talked to a woman who, and we've talked to others before, who are involved in a group called Rock to Recovery, where they use music and songwriting in recovery. And, you know, it, it's whatever works for the individual. Mm-hmm. You know, I've had another fellow on who got into personal training. And running is a great, a great thing to include in recovery and a great way to help people recover. Yeah. I think it's huge. I love it. I do too. I mean, yeah. there's an amazing book by uh, Dr. John Rattay. It's called Spark. I think he's a Harvard MD. Uh, and he wrote a book about like the, how anaerobic exercise uh, works for like brain function, neurochemistry. Uh, and it talks about like the benefits of handling stress, depression, anxiety, ADHD, um, cognitive decline, addiction, all of these factors that 30 minutes a day, like um, can help you with. And well, yeah. Really, and when you run, you can't have your attention inside or you'll trip and fall. Right. You have to at least be looking at your feet mm-hmm. and where you're going, right. you know? And so that, that in itself, similar to just walking or taking mm-hmm. a walk and looking at things around you, you have to get your attention off of what's inside and get mm-hmm. it on what's outside, which is huge. Yeah. It's mindfulness. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's almost like yoga practice in a way that you have to be mindful of what you're doing and it works with breath a lot. So you, you just can't, you got to learn how to breathe while <laughs> running and similar in yoga. Good point. You can't run and not breathe. I don't, right, you got to learn how to do biggest, it. Yeah. That's my biggest right. issue with running It's one of the reasons I don't do it. Mm-hmm. So Mike, this podcast is um, airing on the 30th of December, which means we are two days before the new year. If you had a message for our listeners, um, along that line, maybe a New Year's message of inspiration, what would it be? I would say this, and I and I say this from my personal experience, I was a person who would come to the New Year and wish that things would go this way the next year. Um, they wouldn't go that way. Uh, and so that would just continue my negative, um, like critical like lens of myself. Um, 
And so this is, can be a year that you can achieve things with goal setting. Um, and so look at yourself honestly um, and say, is this pattern working for me? Can I meet these goals that I have? Can I connect to who I am, my values with doing um, behaviors that don't line up with that? And if the answer is no, changes need to be made. Um, and so there are treatment agencies with recovery-based groups all over uh, the country. And so one of the things that's difficult for people is I'm going to go into this places with people who are in recovery and I'm going to judge them because judgment keeps me isolated and better than or isolated. And so be open to that this person next to you who you may have never held, uh, hung out with before in your life may have something to share with you or they might just listen to you. Um, which is a gift. Um, and so you can have some amazing things happen to you in 2022, one day at a time. Um, it's, it, it, it's amazing. And then what can happen to you in five years, in 10 years? And, you know, we have people who are getting like a year coin and a year and a half coin during a pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and th these are miraculous human beings who are resilient and tough and um, you can too. You can be that person. Um, ask for help. That's awesome. Mike, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Happy New Year. Happy All New Year to you. 2022. What, actually, one last question. Yeah. Are there running programs like yours in other states? And if so, how do people find them? I think a good place to look for is uh, Phoenix Multisport. That's that national company that I was talking about. They have branches in a lot of different states. Okay. Uh, and so, I mean, several states. And so that's probably a good place to start. So presumably um, it's phoenixmultisport.com? Yeah, I think that's what okay. it is. Okay, perfect. You know, I, I, I think it's also like um, look around in the meetings and find two people who like to run and yep. say, hey, we're going to run every Saturday at 8 o'clock. Anybody want to join us? And you have two people be like the captains of that. So when you have a kid's soccer game, the other person can lead it and just have that consistent. And then what will grow will be miraculous. Perfect. Thank you so much, Mike. You're welcome. Totally. Thank you. A couple of things that Mike mentioned to me after we after I stopped recording is that he has a new website. It's called remakingasandwich.com. And he also wrote a book by the same title, Remaking a Sandwich. It's by Mike Grant, and it's available on Amazon. It is, he called it a creative nonfiction memoir. So it's his story, but it's kind of written from the viewpoint of a therapist. So it sounds like a very interesting concept. You can get it on Amazon. Once again, it's Remaking a Sandwich by Mike Grant. Thank you for listening. We are closing out 2021. I hope that we have offered you messages of hope. And I hope that we have made sure you know that help is available. Please get into treatment if you need it, or if you have a loved one that needs treatment, get them into treatment. We'll talk to you again in 2022. You have been listening to The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.